everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we love the winter in the studio because ZK won't let us turn on the heat, and so I freeze. Yep, no response from ZK. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. Yeah, you'll respond in a second. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 10 a.m., right after Charlie and right before Nahum's live lunch, as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little... News and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side with a nor'easter approaching here in the New York area, I am joined by my handy-dandy partner, ZK, who will now have a chance to respond to my accusations that he is um, withholding heat from us here in the studio. ZK, what's going on? Oh, my gosh. Come on. <laughs> it's freezing in here. For those of you who are actually watching, and a shout-out to those of you who are watching us on our homepage, I am the experiment. I am the venerable guinea pig here this morning at the Nahum Siegel Network. We are doing a test run of both audio and video of our shows. And uh, as you can see, I have my pashmina. It's not real. It's a knockoff. And I have my Cyclones blanket that I keep on my lap because it's freezing in here. Where's the uh, Where's the thermostat? I want to see what it's at. It's Okay, it says 67, and that's only because I've had the heat lamps on in here for at least an hour. It's cold, man. That's so bad. Oh, my gosh. That's so bad. Wait that, a minute. Are you speaking positively wait, now? Wait, wait, <laughs> a, wait, wait, wait till tomorrow oh. when it's supposed to be a high oh my gosh. of 18 degrees. Yeah, and you and I are in Gourmet Glot. low of <laughs> 8 degrees. So. I want you to know that Gourmet Glot gives out free uh, fresh coffee. You can brew your own cup of coffee in the back, and I will make sure that there is hot cocoa and warmed energy drinks just for you. You better bring a heat lamp, too. <laughs> I also have, by the way, I have a uh, Costco-sized box of uh, hand warmers, you know, that you open the package and whatever else. Um, yeah, I will bring you a bunch of those because we're going to need them for our toes and our fingers, but I will let everybody know about that live remote a little bit later in the show. If you're a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. And if you are a returning listener, thanks as always for making us part of your day. Mary Mel Wallach once a week is just not enough for you. Okay, my my, we need to mute my computer. Uh, do what Arlette Lozier does. You can friend me on Facebook or send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, Miriam at NahumSiegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show, not being rude, just being honest. But I will make sure to get back to you afterwards. Please also follow us on Twitter, NahumSiegelNet, all one word, and Miriam L. Wallach, also one word. By the way, um, we're looking forward to your feedback about being able to watch the shows as as opposed to just listen to the shows. You can listen and watch. Please refrain from making comments about my posture. Um, I have a mom. She's wonderful. And I know my posture is an issue. And by the way, I also have kids, and that's the first thing they comment on every time I'm on TV. You're looking at my posture now? Well, thanks, ZK. All right, now ZK's like, yeah, now I notice your posture. It pretty much stinks. You should know, by the way, that when I posted um, my new headshot, on Facebook, I got a message from somebody commenting on my posture. I'm like, oh, for the love of Pete. Anyway, we have a full lineup, and we have a call from Los Angeles, and it's early there. Not so early, but it's early, so let's get on with the show. That noise, you know what it means. And by the way, for those people who don't think I really open up a fortune cookie every week, I really do. There's the fortune cookie. This is the box from Judy Hersfeld. We thank, we thank Judy, as always, for uh, providing us for with our stash. You can see... Those of you who have decided to watch the fortune cookies whole, which uh, conforms to our standards here at That's Life. Here we go. Most spend lives reading the menu instead of enjoying the banquet. All right. That's like a little bit of a Chinese buffet thing going for it, um, which, by the way, is by Sharon. Ooh, ZK, you're going to like this one. You're going to like this one. Okay. So, you know, I don't have a problem with this. This is not a bad fortune. This is not a bad fortune. Lucky numbers, 755, 15, 12, 23, and 43. Should I play them? You feeling that lucky? Um, Yeah, this week I am. <laughs> <laughs> because it took us no time to get in this week. <laughs> this week, commuting is a breeze. It's the, the only time of the year that living in the five towns is not does not make it a geographically undesirable location because of the Van Wick. Anyway, let's go to uh, the national holidays. It is Celebration of Life Week. That is through the 7th, as to be expected. It is from the 1st to the 7th. It is also Diet Resolution Week. Fantastic Diet Resolution Week. ZK, it's Someday We'll Laugh About This Week. It actually starts today. <laughs> someday We'll Just Laugh kidding. About This. No, I'm not. So I have a feeling that this uh, remote at Gourmet Glot is going to be something that we end up laughing about, not because it's not going to go well, but because we're going to be complaining about the snow and our preponderance of having to do live shows 
during snowfall for a while. Um, today, by the way, is National Buffet Day, hence the banquet in the uh, fortune cookie. I think that's Bashert. It's also 55 miles per hour speed limit day. I don't hold by that. National motive. Uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> that, that, you don't want to know how fast I was going this morning. No, I don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. We're going to keep that between us because this is Vegas. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Um, it's National Motivation and Inspiration Day. Shout out to uh, Charlie Harari. It's National Personal, Personal Trainer Awareness Day. And it's National Science Fiction Day. So, by the way, that means we can basically many, make anything up because it's National Science Fiction Day. I'm totally into it. Do you have a favorite sci-fi book, by the way? Not really. <laughs> nope. And that's where that conversation is going to end. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network. I'm Mary L. Wallach, and I am very excited to introduce my first guest, who uh, I have a feeling is still probably in her pajamas in Los Angeles. Miriam Mark is the mother of three. She's a mother of a child with special needs, and she's a blogger. She lives in L.A., and she joins us. I, I have a feeling that her kids are just about to get moving this morning, but she's taking a little bit of time to uh, speak to us on the air about her newest post. Good morning, Miriam. Good morning, Miriam. How are you? Oh, you got that morning voice going, yeah, kid. <laughs> I do, and I am in my pajamas. You are right. Oh, well, that makes one of us. Anyway, thanks for joining me on the air, and we've had the opportunity to have you on before to speak about the uh, blog that you the blog that you write, and unfortunately for many of us who look forward to your posts, we don't get to read enough, but we were excited when you had posted your newest uh, post, so to speak, your newest blog post about the time off that you've had recently because of the holiday schedule and what opportunity that gave you with your son with special needs. Uh, yeah, I, I've been very busy at work, um, really, really busy, and so I have not had much time to post lately. Um, and, you know, it's the holiday season and things are slow, even though I've been working. Um, most people aren't, so there's not a lot of people to talk to. Um, which gives you more concentrated time while you're working and therefore less time that you need to be in front of your computer. Right. Um, I, I actually do not have very many days of the year, too, to be specific, that I have child care and also vacation. Uh, Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve are my two days of the year that I have that. Hmm. Um, and so on Christmas Eve, I... Uh, as I wrote in the blog, I termed it the "It's All About Miriam" day, and I did all sorts of things that were just for me. By the I mean, way, and that and good for you because whether you're a parent of a child with special needs or just a parent or just a human being, everyone needs time for themselves. Yeah, I mean, I think some people would laugh at what I do when I have time for myself. You know, <laughs> some of the typical things like getting a massage—that was lovely. Um, for me, it was really exciting to go to the butcher. I know that sounds ridiculous, but usually I don't have time to go. I just order. They screw up the order. It gets delivered. I'm unhappy. <laughs> I actually went and walked up and down the aisles. Nice. Like, aimlessly. Like a bench. The things they have. It, it, was, it was fun for me. Right. No, I hear that. Um, and so Tuesday was a really relaxing day, and I topped it off with dinner and a movie with my husband. Um, and so Wednesday morning, I was actually pretty relaxed, and it was Christmas, and there really wasn't... Um, any place to run to, and I'm always rushing, and it's a very frustrating thing as a New Yorker in Los Angeles because nobody here rushes except for me. Are you the only literally. person? Are you the only person who honks the horn? Oh, and I honk it all the time. <laughs> I actually, and I put this in the blog. I'm the only person in carpool line who honks the horn. Oh, and I do. Oh, oh, and I'm oh. not. I'm not. I'm not shameful about it. I honk <laughs> because you know what? I have places to go. I work. Right. And so I need to get moving, and there's no time to chat in Carbo Line. And you are a relocated New Yorker. I am. I grew up in the city. Right. Um, and now I live in L.A. It's been 11 years, and it's, you know, takes some time to adjust to. <laughs> Anytime now, honey. Anytime. <laughs> anyway. I'm still adjusting. <laughs> uh, you know what they say, you could take the girl out of the city. But anyway, exactly. um, so uh, my son goes to public school, and he was off Uh is off for a very, very long time, three weeks to be exact. Wow. Um, and the first week we have a local friendship circle, uh, which is wonderful, and he attended their winter camp, but it doesn't start till 9.30 in the morning, and he had asked if he could come along to drop the other kids at carpool, and usually he's the first one out of the house because his bus comes at 7 a.m. Um, and I said, sure, come along, and he came. Um, and it was my husband's birthday, and every year for his birthday I make him a very crazy uh, fancy dinner. And so I had to go to the supermarket to buy the items for his birthday. And usually I would not take my son with me to the supermarket because I'm always rushing. 
and he really marches to the beat of his own drummer and cannot be rushed. Right. Um, and so since I'm always rushing, I end up, if I take him, yelling at him the whole time, and honestly, it's just too much to take him, but because it was Christmas and I had no place to go, I said, sure. Uh, and we went to the supermarket, and it was fun. It was really fun, and I was very surprised, and I only thought about it after, you know, I wasn't rushing, and because I wasn't rushing, I was intense. I didn't have to yell. I didn't have to scream, um, and we had fun. We walked up and down the aisles. He insisted on pushing the cart. He was running around, running around the aisles and coming back to me, and all of a sudden, from like three aisles over, I hear him scream, Mom, i got to make a U-turn, and it was <laughs> hilarious, <laughs> and he was in his element, and I was cracking up, and I thought to myself, who thought going to a supermarket could be fun in right. general, right. but, you know, and I did just admit that it all about me day. I did go to the butcher. But the point is that I, I never have time to enjoy him like this um, in these types of settings. Obviously, at home or on Shabbos, you know, we have these types of settings. Shabbos, there's no, no place for me to run to. Um, but during the week, on a regular day, doing a mundane errand, it's always stressful. And it simply wasn't. And because it wasn't, it was wonderful. Um, and I was so pleased by what I discovered almost, like, Going to the supermarket with him can be fun, or doing these regular things with him can be wonderful, but I just can't allow myself the time to enjoy it usually. What a what an eye-opening experience for, again, something that is such a commonplace activity, but turned out to be a chavaya. <laughs> My mom's favorite word. It was chavaya, <laughs> exactly. And the truth is that um, it's a little sad to me because, you know, in about three more days, I'll be rushing like crazy again, and it will be hard for me to take him to the supermarket, for example. Um, And I can't do it on a regular day because I don't have time to let him be him. Um, But it was nice nice to have it and nice to recognize it so that I can try to plan the times when we can do things like this, um, even when I am rushing and get to enjoy it. Right. um, It really is, it's good musar as a parent of, of any child that even the smallest activities are ones that can be bonding um, bonding moments between a parent and a child, but also that undivided attention that a child gets doing something as simple and as necessary as going to the supermarket are just mommy, you know, child moments or daddy child moments or whatever it is. It's just alone time. And every kid, no matter what their needs, and every child has needs, those those needs can be met just with that alone time. I think that's true. I think that, and I often say this, all the experiences that I have with my child are typical experiences you would have with a child on speed or, like, exponentially greater um, <laughs> because his needs are greater, right? But I think that's very true. If I took my other kids to the supermarket, right, I would still be rushed. I would still be running. It probably wouldn't be enjoyable. It just wouldn't end up in a yelling, screaming right. You know, it'll just be like, no, I don't have time for that. Let's go. And they can process that and they can actually move their feet. Um, but I, I agree with you. You know, when I was a kid, my mother, we were seven kids. My mother had this thing that she did. Um, what did she call it? Well, mental health days. We were allowed to take off from school some days and have mental health days. But she she would, like, choose randomly, maybe once or twice a year, a day that was just her and whichever specific child. And we would get in the car and we'd go shopping or we'd do whatever we did. And it was just us together. Um and I think things like that are really important. Um, you know, when you're running and you're frantic and you're frenetic, it's hard to remember to do those things. It's also hard as a parent. Um, we're actually taking a step back for a second. We're on the phone now with Miriam Mark. She's the blogger and mother of three and a mother of child with special needs. Mir- uh, Mark Miriam's word. Uh, dot, it's at, at Blogspot? Yeah. Right. Um, at Blogspot. Dot com so right. mark Miriam's word dot blogspot.com right dot blogspot.com um thank you for that yeah we are we're discussing different opportunities that parents have for spending one-on-one time with their children and how a unique experience for Miriam at the supermarket spending the time with her child with special needs was actually an eye-opening experience but um what i wanted to get back to a second was um just how the mundane is fun and I think that often parents get caught up in what the activity is going to be and being able to top this and top that and, oh, it should be this, oh, it should be that, oh, I will have to. No, sometimes it's just about the time. It's funny you say that. You know, one of the things that I often um, 
I guess, bemoan is that with a child with special needs, or I should say with my child with special needs, um, it's sometimes, it's difficult to do things. So we have a very small repertoire of what we do um, on a Sunday or, you know, on any day off, right? And it's nothing too exciting. We go to our local coffee bean. Um, we, we, We have a few things that work, and those are the things that we do. And it's frustrating to me because on Sundays I watch all my other friends do really fun things with their kids that we would never consider because, you know, it's just it's almost never worth the risk to go drive far someplace, let's say, to go to an activity that probably won't work and then, we're all about the exit strategy and not have a good exit strategy, right, because right. now we're far from home. Um, and I find it really frustrating a lot of the time. Or, you know, we do travel. My family lives in Israel, so we get on a plane twice a year and we fly far. But we don't um, take other family vacations. You know, we live in L.A. All of our friends go to Hawaii. They go to Cabo. We don't do any of that um, for many reasons. But most of all, it's just not easy to travel with our son. Um, but what you're saying is true, too. It, it doesn't always have to be about the the um, quantity of the location, so to say, and it could just be about the quality of the encounter. Um, and that's why something as simple as going to the supermarket can be fun if you let it be. Um, and, and most people don't have fun in the supermarket because it's just going to the supermarket, but just the, the concept if you do it with your child and you pay attention to your child and you allow yourself to enjoy it with them, I think that's very true. My kids also like voting with me. Mean, meaning for president? Or for anything, for that matter. It could be for fire marshal. It really doesn't matter. They like, and by the way, I like taking them. Um, of course, I like taking them because my husband's a Republican and I'm a Democrat, and yeah. I like to make a point that I'm canceling out daddy's vote. Um, yeah, we, <laughs> of course I do. Um, but, of course you do. Of course I do. But the reality is, is that, is that, that, um, that experience, the exercising of civic duty, the being a part of the process, the feeling that your vote is making a difference and just the fact that you can't do it every day. I mean, we can go to Starbucks every day, but we can't vote for something every single day. And so they love coming with us. And I have no problem anybody being late for school that morning. I, I really don't. There's something about um, just being engaged in that activity that hopefully also is something that will be a value that you'll impart to your child as they get older but on the flip side, also, when you're spending that alone time with your child in the supermarket, hopefully, even if it's just, you know, picking up eggs or doing whatever, it's still imparting to the child that this is our alone time. And hopefully in 15, 20 or however many years, you, too, will appreciate the fact that your child needs alone time as well. Yeah, you know, I um, it, it's, it's funny because I don't... It's still stressful, right? You go to the supermarket with him, and you want to be in the produce aisle, and he wants to be someplace else, and you live in the capital of the world, and you think to yourself, well, he's somewhere else. Although my husband and I do always say that if anyone kidnaps him, they're bringing him back five minutes later. <laughs> so we don't worry so much about that. Um, but, you know, so at first I was, as this was unfolding, I'm sitting there thinking, God, you know, he's obsessed with the mail, my son, so he's at the circulars. He's standing at the circular uh stand and stealing all the circulars. I hope nobody else needed any coupons. Um, and I'm in the produce aisle, and I can kind of get a visual on him. And at first, I'm like, God, Yonatan, get back here. And I'm screaming. And then I'm like, you know what? It's Christmas. I'm like one of three people in the whole right. supermarket. I know he's at the circulars. I'm sure it's fine. And the m- moment I kind of took that deep breath, mm. that's when the fun started. Um, and it was really nice. It really was nice. And I think that, you know, it's funny because I didn't actually, I processed that it was fun. I actually told a few of my friends, I'm like, I had this great experience today. Um, but I didn't even, and it's funny you say I haven't been blogging so much recently. It didn't even occur to me <laughs> to turn it into a blog right away um, because I've been so removed from blogging uh, because I've been so busy at work. Um, but it, it really was um, insightful and and I've recently been connected with a few people who have are now having either just had children, just discovered that their children with special needs, or struggling with it. And um, and that's one of the reasons I write my blog. I mean, the number one reason I write my blog is purely selfish. It's very cathartic. Well, I think that that's healthy. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the, the the number two reason is because um, it's like random. I kind of started blogging, and suddenly people from like in the most remote places that I don't even know, that I never even heard of, started saying, oh, wait, are you that girl who writes that blog? And I have a child with special needs. And it helps them. And so 
the last one that I that I wrote um, was a really pretty positive one also, and it was about uh, just how things were kind of on a, on an upswing, um, and I had hoped it would help some other families. And and now when I when I write. Um, because I have recently been approached by a few people, I think about that. Like, is there a story that I can tell here? And not every story. Most stories are not rosy and sunshine. Uh, I actually have a friend who, at, every time I post a blog, calls me and says, is this one depressing? Should oh. I read it? Oh. <laughs> um, Man. So, but but <laughs> I, I, I hope that, you know, it, that it imparts a little bit of, um, I don't know what the right word is, you know, um, almost like a deep breath. Well, but also a deep breath sometimes. Like, when you're doing this job, you really need to take a deep breath sometimes because it's hard. Um, and so that I hope that some of the people reading it will see, like, yeah, a lot of my blogs are hard and difficult, and I write very honestly. But there are moments where you that are so special. And, and if I had gone to the supermarket with one of my other kids, it might have been okay, but it wouldn't have been this type of moment. Miriam Mark. Because, oh, sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I'm done. <laughs> Miriam Mock, blogger and right and uh, mother of three, is on the phone with us right now. Mark Miriam's word by um, at I'm having trouble with this one today. Mark, <laughs> I don't no idea why it's. <laughs> I've been Mark up much. Miriam's word at blogspot. I've been up much. I've been up much longer than you, and you sound a lot more <laughs> articulate than I do. That's sad. <laughs> you know. By the way, I just want to point out with the only with the couple of minutes that we have left that when I posted your post on my Facebook page and I wrote, "She's an inspiration," and I meant every word of it. Somebody in the comments wrote that, and and I guess that either this person has a newly diagnosed child or or has a child with special needs, or whatever it was, but she she wrote something to the effect of, oh, I've been waiting for the next, um, I've been waiting for the next blog post, oh, really? and this came at the right time. Like, she obviously just needed a pick-me-up. She needed, there's, there's comfort in numbers. No matter what you're doing in life, there's safety in numbers. It's always comforting to know that you're not alone. And I think that you provide that, is that you're, you're saying, yes, all my experiences are real, Many of them are challenging. I remember your blog post about toilet training your son, um, which was which was striking, and um, and by sharing all of these stories, some of some of which people would be very hesitant to share. You are really providing, um, you know, not only comfort and not only chizuk and not only that breath of fresh air, but you are you are letting people know that they're not alone, and that's huge. You know, I, I I happen to my personality is an open book. I don't really um, hide. I don't. I, everyone kind of knows my life. I'm I'm not secretive, but I also um, you can't hide my son, right? <laughs> Maybe for the first sixty seconds, if he's sitting serenely, quietly looking at the iPad, you right. can't tell. But after that, it's evident. And so the minute I embraced that and I said, it's not like this is a secret. It's not like it's something I can hide, or should I want to? Um, it was easy to talk about and then easy to write about. That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, Miriam, call a cavo to you. I hope you continue writing. I hope you write more on behalf of all of us who um, look forward to your different blog posts. By the way, I know that we have talked about this and you mentioned it, but just in a minute or less, when um, many of us have Yeshiva winter break coming up in a couple of weeks, um, families who are traveling with children with special needs what are a couple of very quick tips you can give those families? I know we have talked about it on the air, but because it is timely and I have you, <laughs> I don't really want, and I don't really want to let you go. Um, <laughs> Not to self-promote, but I actually wrote a very funny blog about that a while ago. It's called something like "Sometimes the Parents Are the Problem." Uh, we don't go a lot of places. We go to Israel, and that's a big one. Right, that's a huge flight. Plane, and right. that works. <laughs> Um, I, I believe in, in having good help, a lot of extra sets of hands. So whether it's your parents or your in-laws or a sister or your babysitter or whoever, um, it's hard to travel for us without. Um, I believe in always having an exit strategy. So, for example, winter break, we go. Uh, my sisters in law come from New York, and we go to Palm Springs together, and I take my son, who doesn't have vacation then anyway, just for one day mm. um, of it. And we stay over one night, and him and I go home early, and I let the other kids stay with my husband. Mm. Uh, it's possible we'll switch this year, but that kind of um, concept. Um, and, and honestly, I think if you have the right drugs, but the right <laughs> help, and you go someplace where – it will work for your child, and that to me is number one. It has to. You can't choose to do something that he or she is going to fail at, 
And so we go places that can be successful. Um, because if you choose something that they're going to fail at, they most certainly will. You'll be miserable. Your other kids will be miserable, and everyone who's around you in the hotel will be miserable or wherever you're staying. Um, and I think I think that's true of all kids. Like, I, I don't think you should take kids on a an adult trip, right, ever. But certainly a child with special needs, if you put them in an environment where they're sure to fail, they won't disappoint you. They'll fail. Mm, good mustard. Yeah, I make sure that when I'm on a plane, um, either – before or after or always after, I always thank the people around me for their patience. And I often thank them during the flight. And my kids are getting bigger and thank God this is, uh, you know, this is not our first flight and whatever. But we um, but I always I always make sure to to um, recognize the fact that they are sitting with small children can be challenging. And I appreciate the fact that they've been patient. And some people are better about it than others, and some people roll their eyes. But when you have a parent who comes over and actually thanks them, it's like it softens everything. I'll tell you one other thing that my husband and I do that made the most massive difference. And I don't remember exactly when it started. Maybe my son was like two or three. We stopped caring what other people thought when we got on the plane or when we showed up someplace. Because we had every right to be there, too. Mm. And the moment we relaxed, it made a world of difference. I mean that, and again, I have a massive pouch of drugs, and I stand on the plane, and I show everyone my drugs, and I say, if anyone wants some, head over here. Right, and by that you mean melatonin, other things that are no, just... No, yes, I'm not... Right, there we go. Let's <laughs> yes, just clarify no, a second. smoking joints on the plane. Right, you are from I L.A. Mean, I'm just kidding. I have yeah, Benadryl right. enough for the plane and melatonin <laughs> enough for the plane and right. anything that you might consider giving your child. Right, real herbal supplements. I have, right. yes, okay. exactly. <laughs> but the point is, I think that the minute as a parent you're not spending the whole flight worrying or the whole trip worrying what people are going to... They're going to be mad and my kid's kicking and my kid's screaming. You relax and then... Everyone can relax, and it makes and your kid relaxes because they see that you're not tense. Right, and then it's just a better experience. Good advice, good advice, good travel advice, and good parenting advice, Miriam. Thank you as always for joining us. I look forward to reading your next post. Uh, Mark Miriam's word at dot blogspot dot com. <laughs> I, thanks for having me. I have here. no idea. Mental breakdown right now. All right, thanks so much, Miriam. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and we are ready for our next guest. It's been about a year since we heard from Esty Ackerman, the the now teenager, not no, no longer preteen, no longer preteen, uh, uh, tennis table or p- tennis table or ping pong champion from West Hempstead. Um, we, we last saw Esty beating the living daylights out of Ellie Hagler when we did the competition at the OU, and I'm sure she's blushing on the other end of the line, and I'm sure Ellie is rolling his eyes saying he threw in the towel and just let her win, but we all know the truth, and Esty has a new story to share because uh, just coming back from a U.S. Nationals Table Tennis Championship, which was held in December from the 17th to the 21st at the Las Vegas Convention Center, um, Esty, I, I should say, her father sent me a picture of Esty holding a brand new trophy. So good morning, Esty. Oh, good morning to you, Miriam. Thank you for having me. Oh, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So tell me about your new trophy. So this was a rating event. It's called the Under 1800, which means that I could be playing people that are 7 years old or 75 years old. It doesn't matter about your age. It just matters how much good you are or what ability you have. So coming into this tournament, this event, I thought I would have a really good chance in. And when I saw my round robin group, it's a, it's a group of four, and I beat all of them. Thank God. So <laughs> then you advance to the round of 16, the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals, and so on. And as I made it all the way to the finals, we were so happy, and we couldn't believe it. And we said to ourselves, just one more match to go, and then we would win first place. And I beat my opponent 3-1 in games, and it was very exciting for us. We were so happy. We couldn't believe it. And I look back to all this training and all this effort I put into it, and I said to myself, this really paid off because as much as I trained for this, I could say that I won one of the events there. Well, it's pretty unbelievably incredible. And call a to you, mazal tov to you. 
Um, according to the email that I got, you finished with a match record of 15 to 11 in singles and 4 to 1 in doubles. You are now ranked 77 for women in the United States of America. Not, yep. not in like Long Island. You are not ranked number 77 in Long Island. You are ranked number 77 out of all 50 states and number four in your age group. Correct. That's craziness. At what, just so that everyone knows, your age group ranges from what to what? Um, it's just girls and it's like 13 and under. 13 and, 13 and under. By the way, you are 13 now, right? I'm 12. Oh, you're still 12. Oh my gosh, you're so cute. Um, (laughs) and I'm not taking away from the fact that you're clearly unbelievably talented. By the way, Esty, you know, something somebody had asked me the last time you were on is, do you play other sports? Um, I actually attend the Hebrew Academy of Nassau County, which I'm on the 7th and 8th grade girls basketball team. Of course you are. And, I mean, we're not doing that great, but, <laughs> like, it's really fun for me, you know, to do something with the school and to be with all the friends that they're all, you know, Jewish, American. Right. Um, and I like it a lot, and I'm a sports player. Right. No, you're definitely, listen, you're definitely an athlete, but obviously when you're talking about being part of a group, being part of a team, which is your opportunity at Hank, versus a one-on-one or even a doubles kind of competition where you have the most, you know, that is the, the, the greatest number of players you're playing with, so to speak, during a ping-pong match. Yeah, it's correct. A, it's a different kind of experience. Yep, it's tons of fun. Right, both are tons of fun in different ways. Yeah. How many hours, by the way, do you spend a day still playing te- um, still playing ping pong? By the way, should I call it ping pong or table tennis? Um, both are fine. Um, you could say ping pong is good. Okay, so ping pong. How how many hours a day do you spend playing ping pong? Um, so now since we came back, we took a little of a rest, but once we have our winter break, we're going to start getting back into it. We're about now three to four or five times a week, and we're going to try for three to four hours. Unbelievable. And tell me something else. Uh, you know, I should take a step back for a second and not just gloss over the fact that you dedicate so much time um, because I can tell you as a person who just goes to the gym every single morning, the dedication that it takes and the commitment it takes yeah. to doing something really and making it part of your day. It's not a it's not a chore. It's something you do habitually. That is the time that you spend playing playing ping pong, and that's the time I spend going to the gym. Yep, exactly. Right, and so you don't look at it as a burden. This is part of your day. Yep. How do you balance it with your schoolwork? Um, well, the whole school and all the principals and all my teachers, they know all about me, and they've really been supportive, and I really couldn't ask for better They've been really supportive when I came back from Las Vegas. I missed a week worth in school, homework, tests, and I've been making things up slowly and quickly, and, I, and I'm still making things up, but they understand, you know, what, what I'm going through, and I really appreciate that how they, you know, are taking their time also out of me doing whatever it is that they can help me with. And it is a little tough, you know, to tell you the truth. I'm not a straight-A student, but I'm not failing. I'm doing okay. And it's tough, you know, when you have a test the next day, but I need to practice for my tournament. But I'm trying to balance both. Yeah, high school is going to be a different story, don't you think? Yeah, but it's going to be a totally different ballgame. <laughs> exactly, literally and figuratively. Um It also says that, as we know or as we expected, you were the only Jewish Orthodox player out of the 716 representing in Las Vegas, almost from every sing- uh, representing almost from every state in the United States. How did, yep. it, how did it feel to be that person? Um, it feels really special to me because I know in my heart that even though I'm Jewish and I'm Shomer Shabbos and I'm religious, I could still do like whatever it is that everybody else could do. That it doesn't make us different than the whole world, that I appreciate that everybody else that helps me. And since I'm Jewish, it feels a better pride of me because all the Jews look at my story and they see a big Kiddush Hashem's and they, and we should only hear, you know, good things from Jews and everything's bad. And, you know, when people look at me, I hopefully they say that, wow, you know, that's a Jew who does 
everything else normal. Good for you. I couldn't have said that better myself. It still amazes me how articulate you are at, oh, such, a, you. at such a young age. Well, we only have a minute or two left, and I know that you're uh, giving us your recess time, which is not only really, really cute, but time I don't want to take away from you. But no have you gotten any strange questions, like questions that only an Orthodox Jew can answer? Um, you know what? Really, people um, have been coming over to me, you know, saying, oh, I heard about your story. I've seen you in that paper. I've heard you on that radio show, you know. And, um, you know, they asked me, you know, how do you keep up with it? Like, don't you have any conflicts with being, you know, Jewish and religious? And I say to myself, you know, just because we're Jewish, you know, you could still do whatever thing you want. Um, nothing should stop you. You should just follow your heart and do what you can. Well, Esty, I think that's a beautiful sentiment, and if it makes you feel any better, I was recently at a business meeting, and somebody I had never met before asked me if my hair was shaved underneath my wig. So um, you and I are definitely people who enjoy answering questions about being from. Uh, yeah, thank you. In, uh, my pleasure, and call a kavod to you. Keep up the good work. What's the next uh, competition you got coming? Um, well, there is, like, two big tournaments a year. There's the U.S. Nationals, which I just came back from. Right. And that's for U.S. citizens. And then in July, there's the U.S. Open, which is for everybody all the around the world. So hopefully we will be attending that. But even but there is regular tournaments around the New York tri-state area, which we will hopefully go into and practicing for and trying to get, you know, to the top. That's unbelievable. And the top for you would be going to the Olympics? Um, you know what? That's not until 2016, but we're going to try. It's very hard because all those people that compete, they're training, like, for sure seven days a week, taking off from school. You know, we're going to try to get to that level, but it's going to take a little bit of work. Well, we're rooting for you here at the Nachum Siegel Network, and I would imagine every Jew on the planet. Esty Ackerman, as always, it's amazing to hear from you. I'm Thank sure, you. I'm sure you'll be hearing from Ellie Hagler, and go <laughs> and go enjoy your recess. Thank you. Have Take care, Esty. Thank you. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and I'm joined by my third and final guest for the day, Dr. Stephen Fine. He is the professor of Jewish history and director of the YU Center for Israel Studies. He received his Ph.D. in Jewish history from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and his M.A. in the history of art from the University of Southern California. Dr. Fine studies the world of the Talmudic rabbis, focusing on relationships between the literature of ancient Judaism, art and archaeology, and the history of Judaism in the Greco-Roman world. His uh, current interests are Samaritan-Jewish relations during late antiquity, Christian-Jewish relations in antiquity, polychromy in ancient Jewish art, and ancient Jewish and Christian understandings of the biblical artisan, Bethsalel, son of Uri. I would also list all of Dr. Fine's honors and awards, but frankly, we are running out of time. Um, I also want to make mention that this fall he taught the history of the synagogue at Yeshiva University, definitely a topic I want to bring up with him after we finish discussing this wonderful New York Times article called, um, or I should say entitled, Chasing Fifth Century Clues from a Woman's Tombstone, in which Dr. Fine and his students are featured. Good morning, Dr. Fine. Good morning. It's such a pleasure to be with you. No, the pleasure is mine. The story in the New York Times that was covered on December 13th, um, I would say of this year, but it's not, of 2013, which, you know, was so last year, <laughs> um, discusses this wonderful um, find that you that you received as a result of an article that you wrote and somebody reaching out to you and this now unbelievable gem that you and your student, students at Yeshiva University are able to explore. So tell us about that. Well, you know, one of the joys of teaching at Yeshiva University is uh, students who can read Jewish texts really very deeply and understand them um, with great precision and with great sophistication. Um, every so often, an, an artifact finds its way into my uh, internet box, into my mailbox, that uh, I've never seen before, that someone sends me, that someone wants to know what it is, and this time, um, I received an email after an article, as you mentioned, in Biblical Archaeology Review on these wonderful tombstones from a place called Soar, which is known from the Torah, and is at the southern end of the Dead Sea on the Jordanian side. Now, these tombstones are really well known, and they represent a rather distant Jewish community in the Talmudic period, in the 5th, 
century or so of, of the common era. And, and they're preserved precisely for the same reason the Dead Sea Scrolls are preserved. They're written in red paint on stones. And as the Dead Sea Scrolls are organic materials and are preserved by the desert, the writing on these stones is preserved in the desert. Now, the neat thing about these stones is that they give us a lot of information about a small community surrounded by a much larger Christian community um, that includes names of people, the date when they died according to the year since the destruction of the temple, the date that they died according to the biblical sabbatical year, and usually some sort of blessing and a Jewish symbol or two, like a menorah on the bottom. And so when a stone found its way into my mailbox, into my inbox, um, that fit that group, I immediately knew what it was. So I gave it to my students in a course on uh, Talmudic archaeology, and I said, okay, guys, here's a new stone, never been published, coming to us from California. What is it? And they spent the whole semester figuring that out. Amazing. Amazing. It really cool? um Yeah, it's incredibly cool. I mean, incredibly cool for me coming from a family of academics where revelations like this and and being that my mother is um, a historian, these kinds of opportunities are often once in a lifetime. So the fact that these students are experiencing what you have been had the opportunity to experience numerous times, <clears throat> excuse me, during your career, and they're doing it as undergrads is really quite incredible. But also, I mean, this is experiential education at its best. You're not just looking at photographs anymore, not that photographs aren't important, but you're not just looking at photographs. You're giving them the stone, this picture um, that be, that starts on, that um, accompanies the article that actually shows two of your students holding and looking at and studying the stone itself, one of them wearing gloves, which is so important, just and the seriousness with which they're they're even focused on the stone in this picture just speaks endlessly about the commitment that they have towards really unlocking what the person um, what this person was about, who this person was, and more about life than um, more than we know, and also just about opportunities that students are being given that that we didn't have when I was a student. Well, I was lucky because I was, as an undergraduate, all the way through, and I've been fortunate as an instructor to be able to find these sorts of things for my students. But this one came to us in such a, a, a wonderful way because it came from uh, Woodland, California, where there's a small biblical museum, and the uh, minister of, of the congregation that owns this museum sent me the stone, and my students developed a relationship with him, finding out the sizes and asking him about colors and letters, because he has a Ph.D. in archaeology. And um, Reverend Morgan was so nice and so kind and so excited by my students that he got his congregation excited by the project. And I got an email one day, and, and, and this is what he said. He said, Steve, I think the stone should be at Yeshiva. I said, what do you mean you Amazing. think the stone should be at Yeshiva? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. Do you have anything to trade for it? <laughs> no. Do you have any money? No. <laughs> right? Um, well, he said, well, I have an idea. Why don't you come out and give a lecture um, in my museum and then go back with it? And we will felt that we've done something good and you've done something good and it's a great thing. And my response was, but you have a biblical museum. We know the name of the people, the name of the woman. Her name is Sada, daughter of something we don't know. We know the name of the Hebrew month when she was died, which was Adar, which is just coming up next month. Right. We are coming up soon, at least. We know the name of um, the, the description of the temple, the menorahs. It's Aramaic, which is a biblical language. Why don't you keep it in your biblical museum? Hmm. And he said, no, no, no. We think it should come to you. When are you coming? So I got, a, I literally got on a plane. We made a reservation. Um, I, I sort of pushed a little instead of doing one lecture, did two because I felt so like uncomfortable with right. the wonderful gift, right? Right. And um, the astonishing thing is that for both talks uh, in Woodland, California, which is a pretty small town about 30 miles north of Sacramento, in a very nice collection, 
Uh, there were more than 200 people. Wow. From all over Central California. It, it was an astonishingly loving experience for all of us. Uh, and so I came back with the stone. Um, they wrapped it up for me in what the Times described as a pizza box. Right, which was you know, really like, cute, right? Isn't that nice? Yeah. <laughs> I must tell you, the photographers and the and the uh, writers at the New York Times were so cautious and so careful and so caring and, and in fact-checking, actually asked me to check some facts, right, wow. to make sure I'd gotten them right. Um, they were they were marvelous, and in dealing with the students, they were they were marvelous. It was an, an educational experience for for all of us. And as I wrote to our friends back in uh, Woodland, you know, Sada is now uh, at Yeshiva University, being studied again with the, by the Talmudists, which which is pretty cool. Which is incredible, and I also love the fact, and there is a there is a very sweet and warm sentiment to this piece. Um, I it comes straight through. I agree with you a hundred percent. But you're also referred to as the Jewish Robert Langdon, which for those people who I should say who for those people who are not familiar is um, a is a major, uh, I should say, almost like um, a Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones kind of modern uh, figure in the Dan Brown books and also in the movie The Da Vinci Code, which obviously was very popular. Uh, So how does that feel? First of all, I was really embarrassed. <laughs> um, I've been called a lot worse, Dr. Fine. i got to be honest a, with you. It's not bad. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> um, I, I, I work on the menorah. I'm publishing a book soon with right. the Harvard Press on called the Menorah Biography. And more than that, um, last year I was standing up on a scaffolding uh, two inches away from the Menorah of the Arch of Titus on, on a YU-sponsored project where we actually discovered the original yellow paint that the menorah was painted with. I remember reading uh, that article. I think it was either in YU Today, it was in something. I remember reading... It's also that, in the New York Times. Oh, well, I, it could have been, been where I was reading it as well. But I remember reading that article and seeing that picture of you in the scaffolding and reading all about this paint. I'm like, oh, my God, we really we really know the yellow. Like It's we, really amazing. Right. Uh, anybody who wants to see the pictures can go to yu.edu slash CIS, Center for Israel Studies, and there's a whole description there. But we, I, I study these things, and the color of the menorah is so important because we're used to thinking of the ancient world in black and white, and now we can actually look at the panel of the um, vessels of the Temple of Jerusalem being brought in as spoils to Rome and begin to imagine it in living color with all of the uh, excitement and fury and majesty that comes with color and not as sort of a white ghost. Right. Coming to you in Technicolor takes on a totally different meaning in this case. Remember, Dorothy starts out in a sepia-colored canvas and ends up in Technicolor Oz, right? Right. And in a real sense, we now know that before color television and color films, people actually reported dreaming in black and white. Oh, really? And, and, And Yes, really amazing. And and for me, I, I remember um, the assertiveness of uh, Walt Disney's Carousel of Color, which told me in black and white that my parents ought to have a color television, <laughs> or, or, or that Kennedy died in black and white, but right. uh, Batman was in color. Right. And, in other words, there was a moment of transition for everybody in my age group where our sense of, of reality changed. And in scholarship, it's my generation that realized that the whole ancient world, including the Jewish world, what was in these brilliant colors. Now, what? how does this relate to the Robert Langdon thing? I study menorahs and other Jewish symbols uh, within their historical context, meaning in terms of other Jewish artifacts, whatever period, usually Roman artifacts, Jewish literature, Roman literature, in order to find out what they really meant in the world in which they lived. Um, Robert Langdon, it's a completely different method, mm. but it comes out of a 1930s through 50s through 60s approach to scholarship that some people may remember in, say, um, Joseph Campbell or Mircea Liade, that goes back to Carl Gustav Jung, of everything being symbolic, and if you put it together just the right way, we can find out the true original meanings. Right. right. right? I don't do true original meanings. The truth is somebody once said, oh, you're the un-Robert Langdon, <laughs> which is more the truth than Which not. was a bigger compliment. <laughs> I, I like that one better. But the truth is, in, in my studies of the history of the menorah, I have found things far stranger than Robert Langdon can come up with. What t- tell me what it is about the menorah that fascinates you? And by the way, people should note that there is a menorah on this tombstone. 
Absolutely, and that made my students very happy. <laughs> but and, and, and me no less. I thought it was um, also, I, I, I want to hear about the menorah, but I also thought it was very interesting that the article notes that one of the reasons you know that it is the tombs, that is a Jewish tombstone is because it was written in Aramaic, which is uh, a, which was a language only used by Jews at that time. So even though there were Jews living within this uh, Christian city, they were not, um, you know, this was still uh, identifiably a Jewish tombstone. Well, let me just just tweak that a little bit. Sure. Lots of people spoke Aramaic. It was the language of the East. For Christians, it, they called it Syriac, and they had their script. And for people from Palmyra, which is biblical Tudmore in the middle of the Syrian desert, um, they spoke what we call Palmyran, which is more or less the same language, but with a slightly different script. Then there's folks who lived at Petra and, and at uh, all the Nabataean sites in southern Israel, like Avdat, and they spoke Aramaic, too, except it had its tweaked script. And so they all spoke more or less the same language and could talk to each other, uh, just as the Samaritans uh, spoke the same language, but they all had different scripts. Mm. And so they couldn't read each other, but they could talk to each other. Got it. Got it. Which is really, really neat, right? In other words, Very here we have people who cannot read each other's stuff, <laughs> since most people weren't literate anyway. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, but they could speak to each other. And there was some sort of person who's I, my, my imagination is that for the hundred or so 150 years, they made these stones and so are. There was somebody whose job it was when someone died to, to take a piece, a, a quill, not a quill, a, a reed, and to take um, some red ink, scribble something on a stone. Um, and it's probably the same person who's making them and the Torah scrolls if they if they didn't bring them from elsewhere. Wow, that is that is incredible, and I only have a minute or two left, but I do want to hear about the menorah. So tell me, what is it about the menorah that fascinates you so much? The menorah has fascinated me since I was a little kid. Um, you know, the idea of, of this, this divine light shining through this object that no one else has anything like it mm-hmm. uh, has, has just been so evocative and interesting, um, and and... We think we know so much about it, but there's so much lurking underneath um, that doesn't take much scratching, actually, for a historian. That that makes it much more interesting and uh, and and connecting. You know, people like to say that Jews don't have uh, this visual tradition that you find in a religion like Christianity, which is true. Judaism is much more like Islam in that way, but it doesn't mean that we don't have this evocative sense for those of us who are visually connected. In other words, for people who have that that ability and need to see, there's so much to see and think about, uh, and the menorah is a great place to start. Well, that is... That is a beautiful sentiment, and um, it, it definitely makes me appreciate my menorahs in my house in a totally different way. Dr. Stephen Fine from Yeshiva University Center for Israel Studies, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. For those of you who are looking for the article, you can find it on the New York Times website. It is from December 13th. It was in the New York Region section. It's called Chasing Fifth Century Clues from a Women's from a Woman's tombstone and i definitely will be posting it on my facebook page later today dr fine thanks for coming on and as always it is an open invite thanks so much i'll be back you got it take care bye you've been listening to that's life here on the nachem siegel network we're quickly going to go through the roundup because i don't want to be overtime nachem is ready to start his live lunch and we are trying to keep on schedule so the live lunch is now starting at 11 o'clock from 11 to 1. Then at 1 p.m. we have the stunt show hosted by Gorf. We have Throwback Thursday, Jamie the AM, from long, long ago. Definitely listen to that here, what was new and cool then, and some funny voices along the way. I want to make sure, though, to mention, obviously, spin class, by the way, at 6 p.m. with Michael Fragan, but I want to make sure to mention tomorrow Naomi's live remote, weather permitting. ZK is giving me a death stare. Uh, weather permitting Naomi's live remote from Gourmet Glot in Cedarhurst. At 9 a.m., we will have a supersized show from 9 to 10.30 tomorrow morning. That is right after JM and AM, after Malcolm and Nachum are done, after all of that is all said and done and JM and AM is closed. Don't turn off your computers and actually 
Watch us on the homepage because we will be doing a live video stream. Please, God, all should be well. A live video stream from the store as Naomi does her cooking demonstrations. We'll also be welcoming our friends from Abelson Hyman and Hodes Golan. They will be there as well. We thank Gourmet Glot as always for their support and their participation in our various programming. We welcome the Abelson Hyman and Hode Golan families to the network. They will be with us the entire year and hopefully from there on. Don't forget, 9 to 10.30, both on the air and, uh, I should say, watch it and listen, both on NahumSiegel.com. And, uh, .com. An updated 2014 schedule is on our website, NahumSiegel.com. And click on the network schedule. I'm leaving you today with Marabu by Nochi Chrome off of the Ananim album. I think this was the first song I have ever played on the air. Um, it was introduced to me by Mayor Ferding, and it is a song I continue to love. That's life, everybody. My thanks to ZK. Bye, guys. Yeah.